Hebrews chapter 10, reading at verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, and it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit who bears witness to us, for after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, where there is forgiveness of these there is no longer any offering for sin. My wife and I live in an apartment in Sydney on the banks of the harbour, a branch of the harbour. And just in front of us, there is a marina where people come and moor their boats. We've noticed that a lot of the boats come back after a day sailing on uh, the harbour and they spend a lot of time mooring their boats because during the week there will often be winds blow up and a boat which is not securely moored, which does not have all its equipment securely tied down, will not only be a source of destruction to itself but will be destructive to other boats as well. And in all our years we've watched carefully as owners bring their boats back and they tie them down very carefully because a drifting boat is a dangerous boat. A drifting Christian believer 
is a danger not only to him or herself, but is also a danger to other believers. And there is one letter in the New Testament which is said, it's a letter of exhortation and it is written for drifters. And that is the letter to the Hebrews. And the letter to the Hebrews is specifically written by a man who is writing to people who have become Christians from a Jewish background. And the great temptation for them is to drift back to the synagogue. They've come to identify with Christ and Christ's people, but now the drift is on and they're drifting back to the synagogue. And you can imagine the family pressure on them. Oh, come back here. This is where you grew up. This is where your cousins are. This is where your family is. This is where your cultural identity is. But there was more to it than that. You see, the ruling Roman authorities had a special alliance with Jews. The Jews were never the object of persecution. And so you knew that when you heard the the lions roaring in the Colosseum, they were never roaring for Jewish blood. But Christians had no such security. And so it was a much safer option, therefore, to drift back to Judaism because you knew that as long as you uh, had a haven in Judaism, then you were not threatened by the Roman authorities. And so the writer is saying, don't drift back. Drifting believers are a danger to themselves. Drifting believers are a danger to others. And one of the ways he seeks to seek this, stop this drifting is that he makes comparisons. Now, it's interesting to make comparisons. I, I, I had a fellow take me out the other day for, he called it, let's go and have a fry-up. A fry-up. I'm sure my wife would not approve of this. But anyway, she's a long way away, so it was all right. And it was a terrific fry-up. I could hear my heart groan with every mouthful. And I'd say, I'd say to you that the fry-ups in Scotland are actually better than the fry-ups in Australia. And my, my, my sense is that I have had a fry-up in Glasgow, and I think the fry-ups there are actually better than the fry-ups here. You see, I make it... Oh, I'm very sorry about that. I'm very sorry. Well, what I'm doing is making a comparison. I'm saying this is better than that, in my opinion. This is better than that. And, you know, in the New Testament, 19 times the writers of the New Testament make a comparison. This is better than that. But 13 of those 19 times occur in the letter to the Hebrews. He is comparing two things and he's saying this is better than that. So don't drift back to that which is inferior. Now remember when the writer of the Hebrews sat down and wrote, he didn't write in chapter and verse. He just wrote in a scroll. And it wasn't until the 1200s that someone came in and added chapters, and in the 1500s someone came in and added verses. And so what you've got, a chapter, the writer indicates what one chapter is by starting the chapter in the same way as he completes it. Now, when Robin was reading from chapter 10, if you've got your Bibles open there, you will see that chapter 10 ends at verse 16 and 17 with a quote from Jeremiah 31. But if you flip back to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 8 then you'll see that he begins with the quote from Jeremiah 31. In fact, that quote in Hebrews 8.8 is the longest quotation, uh, the longest citing of any section of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And they're both from Jeremiah 31. So what he's saying is, before there were chapters and verses, what he's saying is, uh, this is one chapter. 
chapter 8 verse 8 through to chapter 10 verse 17. This is one chapter and it is one theme. And the theme of the whole section is that the new covenant has now come and it's better. So don't drift back to the old covenant. Now what is this new covenant we've heard it prayed about today? What is it all about? Well, come with me to chapter 8 and you'll see three features of the new covenant. First, look at chapter 8, verse 10. And he's quoting from Jeremiah, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This, of course, is repeated in chapter 10. And he's quoting from Jeremiah, but Ezekiel says exactly the same thing. The day is coming when I'm going to give new life to my people. I'm going to place my spirit within them and therefore I'm going to place my purposes and my law within them. I'm going to make them new. And that, of course, is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You've got to be made new. And the day is coming, he says, in the new covenant when God's law will be a part of your very consciousness. But secondly, look at this in verse 11. He goes on and says, And they shall not teach each one of his neighbour... And each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. So the second part of this new covenant is it's not a matter of rules and regulations. There's not some discrimination that some members of the new covenant will know God and have special access to him and others won't. No, all people who are part of this new covenant will know God without the need of any priestly intercession. They will all know me. And then have a look. And he says in verse 12, thirdly, that in the new covenant there is forgiveness. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. What a wonderful truth. No matter what your past, if you come to the new covenant, you have complete and eternal forgiveness. Your past is vanquished. It's gone. It's forgiven. Uh, One of my pastors was travelling in the United States from San Francisco to Washington. As he's travelling back, he had a young man sitting next to him with the young man's son. The young man shared that he brought his son from Washington to San Francisco to meet his grandparents. He was the first grandson. What do you do in Washington? I work for the US Justice Department. Uh, What section of the Justice Department do you work in? The young man said, I work in the Nazi search unit. The Nazi search unit? Do you mean to say that you're still finding Nazis after World War II? Very few these days. But there are still some. Uh, What's the response when when you find them? He said, universally, there is relief. At last, this sense of guilt can be dealt with somehow. You see, here is the reality. I do not have broad shoulders enough to bear the weight of the guilt of my past, and neither do you. And you come to the new covenant, the writer is saying, look, it's better, that's an understatement. Here is wonderful, eternal forgiveness. And so he says, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. That's what God says. And God says, the God who remembers everything, he says, I will not remember their sins. They're forgotten, they're gone. Just like that. 
New life from within. Every member, personal knowledge, forgiveness, free and forever. It makes the old covenant redundant. You don't need a temple. You don't need a tabernacle. You don't need a priesthood. You don't need a sacrificial system. It's all gone. That which has come is better. And that's the theme of this section. And he says that it is better for three reasons. And would you notice that the first reason he gives us in chapter 9. And if you look at chapter 9, he says, because we have a better presence. And chapter 9, if you just look at 1 to 5, he's describing to you the furniture and the layout of the tabernacle. There's the lampstand, there's the table, there's the curtain. Verse 2, he talks about the holy place, that's the first room. And then behind the second curtain, he says, verse 3, there is the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the tabernacle. And the priest can go regularly into the holy place. But verse 6, verse 7, only the high priest can go into the inner sanctum, into the most holy place. And he can only do that once a year. And he must carry blood with him to atone for his own sins and the sins of the people. Why is he telling us all this? Because he is telling us that access to God is restricted access. You come on God's terms. Now, in Australia, we don't like that. We are a free society. We don't have class structures. I know when you go and get on a Qantas jet, it says, if you're a gold member, you can come this side. If you're just an economy person, you can go that side. Australians will blow that. We're going either side we want. Don't try and limit us. But the tabernacle says this. God determines the conditions and the terms on which you will come to him. And you will come to him on his terms and there is restricted access. I've been to a parliamentary reception to see members of the royal family in Australia. I was told what I should wear. I was told that if I was presented what I should address the royal family as, whether I should offer them a hand or not. I was told what time I should be and where I should be. Because the parliamentary reception was determined by members of the royal family and they determine who comes to them with an invitation and the terms on which they come. And chapter 9 reminds us, the writer says, that God has every right to say who comes to him and the terms on which you come. And he says that the tabernacle, coming to the tabernacle is but a symbol because there's a better presence. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. And in verse 11, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. That is, Jesus doesn't bring us to any earthly tent, any tent which has been weaved together by people. Where does Jesus bring us? Well, look at verse 24. And he tells us, chapter 9, 24, For Christ has entered... Verse 24, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. You see, the old covenant brings you to the tabernacle. It brings you to the temple. That's just a symbol. But through Jesus, you come to the presence of God himself. No symbol, but the real presence Tomorrow morning, I take the train back to London. Tuesday, I'll go to the National Gallery. I'll look for my favourite portrait in the National Gallery. And I'll spend about an hour sitting and looking at this favourite portrait. I don't feel like I'm in London until I see this portrait. 
One time I turned up to the National Gallery and this portrait was closed. And I went and asked why. Oh, they're lacquering the floor in front of this portrait because we believe that this portrait is the most popular portrait in the collection and so the floor in front of this portrait needs to be lacquered more than any other area in the gallery. I felt cheated. And my wife knows I love that portrait and that portrait... Uh, uh, one-tenth the size of that portrait, a print, sits on my study wall at home. And it's a portrait by a French painter by the name of Paul de de la Roche. And it's a portrait of the execution of Lady Jane Grey, the young Protestant lady in the Tower of London in 1552, decapitated under the reign of Queen Mary. But in my study, I've got a tenth the size but then to go to the National Gallery and sit before the real thing, why, there's really no comparison. I've got an image, but the perfect portrait is there in the National Gallery. Copies are impressive. Come to the tabernacle, curtains, blood, priests all done up, bleeding animals, sacrifice, it's all very impressive. But the writer says, don't drift back. You're going back to the copy." Come through to the greater tabernacle. If you come via the new covenant, faith in the Lord Jesus, he will bring you to the better presence, the presence of God himself. And the second thing he says about this is that he's bringing you to a better presence because he is a better priest. And he's already said he's tempted as we are in every way yet without sin. So he didn't need to bring anybody's blood to cover for his own sin. And the problem with animal blood is that it doesn't really do the job, does it? Why? Because it's not loving. The animal doesn't die out of love for you. It's not voluntary. The animal is driven screeching to the altar. It's not voluntary. It's not loving. And it's not perfect. It's not a perfect sacrifice. But if you look at chapter 9, verse 12, we see that Jesus' blood is better. Verse 12, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? Look at chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Of course it's impossible. But God has prepared a body for Jesus. And in verse 7 we read, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And Jesus gives that body back to God as a perfect sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 10. And by that will... We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He is a better priest. Why are you going back to the old priests who have been tempted and sinned? But our priest has been tempted in every way without sin. His sacrifice is loving, voluntary. It is perfect. And notice, did you notice that one thing that the tabernacle furniture didn't have? Sometimes when you're really tired, you're looking around for what? You're looking around for a chair. 
And yet there is no chair in the tabernacle as a reminder to the priest that his work is never over. He never just sits back and and just collapses in the chair and says, beauty, it's all done. But if you look at chapter 10, verse 12, it says, he offered for all time one sacrifice for sins and he sat down at the right hand of God because his work is done. That's over. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. He sat by one sacrifice. He has made perfect forever. Perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. You see, here it is. A better presence, God himself. A better priest. A perfect priest. Perfect forever. Because of what Jesus has done. And thirdly, just simply notice that the writer says there's a better result. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is, he says, an eternal redemption. It's a purifying of the conscience. The ransom has been paid. Sin has been dealt with once and for all. Drift? Where are you going to drift? You have that which is best. Why are you going back? to the alternative. Oh, well, it just seems to be like a huge multinational enterprise, doesn't it? And when I come to our church, it just seems like a little corner store. I love to see the crowds. I love to see the colour. I love to see the ritual. And the writer is saying, don't drift back because you've got that which is perfect under the new covenant. When we come to these verses, we are aware that salvation is not an award. It is a gift. It is a gracious gift, contrary to my desert. Salvation is God's achievement. It's God's provision. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, well, now I've done my part. Now it's over to you to finish it off. If God had left anything for me to do, then I simply could not have done it. The writer here is saying the day of atonement has come and the last great day of atonement has been separated and it has been celebrated and it is at the cross. And when the German reformer Martin Luther was asked, do you love God? Luther said, I hate God. By the way, if you ever meet one of our Muslim friends, always ask them that question, do you love Allah? I always ask that question. I have never yet had a Muslim who says, I love Allah. I fear Allah. I worship him. I reverence him. But I don't love him. And yet Luther said that when he understood what God had done for him in Christ, that he provided rather than just required, he said, I came to love him. When we were sending our boys to school in Sydney, we sent them to a school where the headmaster had been bullied as a schoolboy himself. He had set up in the school a bullying hotline. He said, any parent who has any suspicion that their son is being bullied, you get on that hotline and tell us. And the hotline in office hours will come to the church office, but after hours it will come to my home up to midnight each day. So don't ring after hours and start talking to me about your son's academic record. The bullying hotline is for one purpose only, to report bullying or even your suspicion of bullying. And who is the greatest bully of history? The greatest bully of history is religion. 
It's a religion which requires that you do the impossible and then threatens you with terrible punishment if you can't do the impossible and yet it knows that you can't do the impossible. Isn't that a persistent and cruel bully? And yet the writer is saying, do you see that the new covenant in which you have eternal redemption, which God has provided for you, silences the bully once and for all. It is finished. A better presence, a perfect priest, and a better result. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked turn to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. A better presence, God himself. A better priest, a sinless, perfect, voluntary sacrifice. A better result, a clean conscience, perfect forever. Now, if we go to morning tea today and you might come up to me very kindly and say, here you are, I've got your black coffee. I'll say, oh, thanks very much, but I'm actually a white tea. Oh, but I put four sugars in your black coffee. Well, that's very thankful, but I'm very grateful. I'm sure you're sincere and well-meaning. But maybe you could have asked me before, what did I want? Ask God, how can I have access through the perfect life, death, resurrection of his son? And don't appear before me without Jesus because that was a costly sacrifice. And don't come to me covered in your religion or your morality. Don't come apart from Jesus. He says the terms on which we come. Now, if you come out of the chapter, look at verse 19 of chapter 10. He there applies all this. He says, therefore, chapter 10, verse 19, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. You see, there is our conviction. If you want a conviction of the best that we have, there it is in chapter 10, verse 19 to verse 21. But every conviction... If it's true, conviction is backed up by commitment. I have a conviction that I'm married. If I live as a single man, it doesn't mean much, my conviction. I have a conviction that I'm married and I live as a married man. Now, if you have the conviction of verses 19 to 21 that you have a better presence and a better priest and you have a better result... Then he says, well, here is your matching commitment. He says, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So if you know you have this presence, you come. And you come because you can come because of what Jesus has done and pray. Uh, one of the senior elders in our Presbyterian church, a Chinese church in Sydney, uh, one day came up to me and he said, you know, my parents were converted in mainland China under the missionaries. And the missionaries did a good job. They trained my parents very well. I never heard my mother and father pray unless they finished their prayer in exactly the same way. I often heard them pray. But every prayer finished exactly the same way, just as the foreign missionaries had taught my parents to pray. They prayed like this, and this is how they ended. And we pray with thanksgiving... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
trusting in his merits alone. Amen. That's a brilliant way to pray, isn't it? It's exactly this, that we have a new and living way, but it's because of Jesus, not my merit, but it's because of his merit. So the writer says, well, let us come. And then in verse 23, he goes on and he says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. See, there is only one thing impossible for God. It is impossible for God to break his word. It is impossible to God act, to act contrary to himself. Therefore, we know that our hope is certain and sure. And therefore, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the confession of our hope. And then he goes on in verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Let's get under each other's skin. Let's get into a bit of banter about how we can do the good works which God has prepared for us to do. This same headmaster, I remember, uh, sent home a, a letter to all the parents and especially to the fathers. And he said, you fathers, when you drive your boys to school, turn off the radio and talk to your boys. Well, that was no great effort for me to do that. I did drive my boys to school and I did turn off the radio. That was good. Uh, it was just all that sort of stuff. So I was happy to turn it off. And there was complaint, of course, for the first few days. And then after a few days, there was conversation. And then we'd always, as I got to the school gate, I'd say, I, I want to pray with you. And I, don't, I won't embarrass you. I won't stop outside the school gate and we'll put our heads down and pray. Rather, as we approach the school gate, that's when I will pray. I'll keep my eyes open because I'm driving, but I'll be praying. <laughs> and every day I prayed exactly the same prayer. And I asked my son, do you remember that? He remembered the prayer. Oh God, today give us, please give us minds which are humble, minds which are clean, and minds which are alert to the good things which you've prepared for us to do. That's what I prayed for my sons. That's what I prayed for me. A humble mind, a clean mind, and an alert mind to the good things that God has prepared for us to do. Let us think of ways we can stir one another up, verse 24. Agitate one another, creative ways to do good that God has prepared for us to do. And then finally he says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Don't be aloof. Don't drift away. Make a priority. Meeting together with the new covenant community. And that's not meeting back in the synagogue. And that's not meeting out there in the sports field either. Make your priority the new covenant community. So here's my conviction. Is it yours? The best presence, the best priest, the best result... And here's my commitment. Draw near. Hold fast. Spur one another on. Don't drift off. Now let it sink into you. Come back with me to chapter 8 verse 1. And let me just remind you of these great words. In chapter 8 verse 1 the writer says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated 
at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now come to chapter 10, verse 12. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It's finished. He's done it. It's over. And then finally come to chapter 12, verse 2. 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. A better presence, a better priest, a better result. Back in 2009, my mother went to heaven. My father had gone in 2001. My father had been converted at the age of 48 in 1962. My mother, a week later. I was their only son. I have two older sisters. And it was up to me to take the initiative uh, to have the headstone at the family gravesite put up. I still have my mother's old Presbyterian hymn book, the blue book. You don't get them like that anymore. And in the front, my father had just written to my darling Sheila, my mother's name, may hymn 410 be a constant joy and comfort to you, and signed his name. 410 is the Bonner hymn. You know it. You're Scottish. I heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, and found in him a resting place. And he has made me glad. That's the family hymn for us. But I thought, no, that's not going on the headstone. Scripture. Because I'm going to be buried there too. But no, I didn't have a sense that any particular scripture would fit. So knowing my father and mother's Scottish affiliation, I went back to Bonner. And I found this hymn. And this is the hymn that's on the family headstone really sums up Hebrews 8 to 10. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Upon another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Jesus Christ, they're all. You see, it's the best presence. He is the best priest here is the best result, perfect forever. Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise and worship you. We love you because of what you have provided for us in our Lord Jesus. A perfect life given in sacrifice, bringing us into a perfect presence, the presence of yourself, and being made perfect forever. Our Heavenly Father, we praise, we worship, we reverence, we adore you. Help us therefore continually to draw near to you, 
to hold fast to the hope we profess, to stir one another up, to love and good deeds, and not to drift off, we pray, from you or your people. And we pray this prayer with thanksgiving in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in his merits alone. Amen.